Good morning. The song is, in some ways, so simple and yet so powerful. And I think when you look at your life, my life, all of our lives, there are, there are words that get spoken into your life or, or about you or your life. Some are really positive and good. Some have had a positive impact on you or, or are even voices that get sort of stuck in your head or embedded in your heart. But the other truth and the other side of that is there are words that have been spoken to you in your life, and there are now voices sort of in your head inside of you that have gotten lodged in that are really painful. There are things inside of us swirling around, voices perhaps from a parent or from a friend or from someone we loved very much that spoke words to us that we've never forgotten, that have caused pain in our life, that, that, that maybe even have deteriorate, deteriorated how uh, much worth we feel about ourselves. And those are very real. And as we plunge into this new series, Blueprint, Discovering God's Design and God's Purpose for Your Life, I think this is the starting place to be aware of because because the reality is that God, the one who created you, has so much to say about you. And God wants to redefine your worth. He wants to redefine the voices in your head. He wants to redefine the things that you, that, that, that you um, understand about yourself. I love this passage in Ephesians chapter 2. It's a powerful verse. You might be familiar. And it says this. This is God saying this about you. For we, or you, we as a community and you as an individual, for we are God's masterpiece. For you are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works or good deeds, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So long ago, he had good works, good deeds, good things planned for your life. The Bible says you are God's custom-designed masterpiece, created with purpose and intention. You're not an accident. Everybody say, I'm not an accident. Ready? I'm not an accident. You're not an accident. And in this little text here in Ephesians 2, there's this word masterpiece. And it's where we get our English word poem. It's the Greek word poema. It refers to a work of art. So you are God's handcrafted work of art. His painting, his sculpture, his novel, his canvas. You ever been looking at a painting or some kind of art that is a, is a bit abstract or, or maybe a little confusing. Maybe you've been with a group of people and you're looking at this art. Maybe it was an art museum or something. And you're sort of just looking on it, sort of rubbing your chin. Or other people around you are too. And they're like, oh, that's, uh, th- 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 there's such depth to that piece. Right? Or, oh, that artist had such passion. Or, or, oh, that piece of art just intrigues me. You ever heard people say that? Maybe it wasn't you. Maybe it was them. And really, they, those are all fancy words of saying, I don't really get it. <laughs> you know? And, and, but maybe that's you. Maybe you're that piece of art, right? Nobody gets you. And you're the enigma in the, in, in the room, so to speak, right? But God gets you. Don't worry. You know, because, because here's the thing about God. God is the master artist. And since every work of art originates in the imagination of God, that means that you originated in the imagination of God. Sorry, that every work originates in the imagination of the artist. So you originated in the imagination of God. So long before your mom and dad thought of you, God did. You too. (laughs) One day you'll realize. 
And from this day forward, God is painting a picture of grace on the canvas of your life. Ephesians 2 also goes on to tell us that God prepared good works for you, and he prepared you for good works. See, God is writing his story through your life, a story only you can tell, a story that God has chosen to tell through the output of your life's good works. Through your unique contributions, you are God's masterpiece. And these good works are who and what you give your life to in service. They're who or what you give your life to in service. The idea of good works tells us that that God's intention for you is to leverage all of who he designed you to be to serve others, to serve him every day in every way from this day forward. And so as a masterpiece of God, as an, you know, that, that means you're an original. I love what Eugene Peterson says. He gives this great treatment of Galatians 5, 26. He says this, simply put, each of us is an original. You're an original created by God. When an artist makes a masterpiece, the original piece of art has a measurable value. And that's true of you and me as well. So you are an original work of God created with a measurable value. And for many of us, perhaps all of us, we have to let that sink in deeper and deeper and deeper. Originals are always worth more than copies. And God doesn't make copies of anything. God didn't mass produce you, and that's important to understand. You've been designed by the masterful architect, sculpted by the master artist. You're a one of a kind. You're a custom designed handcraft. You're God's handiwork. And that reveals that you have immeasurable value in God's eyes. To say it a different way, there has never been and never will be anyone else like you. God treasures you. As that song said, he loves you. You are his son or his daughter. You are royalty to him. You are his beloved. He delights in you every day in, ways that, in more ways than you could ever fathom, ever understand. There is no one who can be or do what God prepared long ago for you to be and do. And that's the foundation of this entire series. But, but here's the thing. That's not a testament really to you. It's a testament to him. God created you an original masterpiece with a measure of value. God created you with intention, with purpose, with design. And this points to God, not simply to you. One of my favorite texts in all the Bible, truly, is Psalm 139. And, and it's David who writes the psalm, and he gives us great insight into the masterful artist or architect who who formed you. And so through David's voice, he says this in verse 13, for you, and that's as if he's saying, you God and you alone, for you alone, God, created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. One translation renders that verse, you have been sculpted from nothing into something. Then verse 14, I praise you, David says, Because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, God. I know that full well. Then verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. Now this idea of secret place has connotations of of going into a hidden safe place. Concealed from intrusion or impurities. And so just as an artist 
takes his or her canvas into a hidden studio, God takes you into this hidden studio where you are woven together by his skillful hands with intricate care for his highest purpose. The master weaver selected your temperament threads, your character texture, your unique talent stitching, all before you were born. The passage continues. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. Most translations, when you read this passage, they hint at it, but but if you looked at the Hebrew language where the Old Testament was originally written, these lines are composed of this sort of mashup of things. That There's these images of the body, uh, an artisan, the womb, the earth. And essentially, God is portrayed as a master craftsman who is weaving, knitting, or you could say embroidering a garment or tapestry together. He is making something, in this case, a human being. And he is intimately involved in every step of the process. Then the last part of this text reads, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. You have this word ordained, which means formed or fashioned. And and the same word is used way back in Genesis 2 at the very beginning of the Bible. It's it's in relation to God making another human being, Adam. And and verse 7 of chapter 2 describes Adam being formed by God. Out of what most translations, they use the word dust, but it's very valid to think of the terms mud or clay. And to see God fashioning Adam like a piece of pottery, again, the master artist. Now, I remember back when I was really young, and I, was, I grew up kind of a surf kid on the beach in, in Wilmington, North Carolina. And at the time, I don't know if anybody remembers these, but, um, but in, in surf land where I grew up, uh, there were these shorts, but they were long shorts, and we called them jams. Anybody hear, heard of jams? Yeah, okay, a number of you heard of jams, right? And, um, and they're basically these really colorful uh, shorts that, you know, I mean, there's like shorts now that are cool that go past the knee and all that, but, you know, back then they were like up to here, you know, kind of thing. I'm 37, so, you know, and like here was long, but these jams went down, you know, something like that. Well, here's the thing. My mom wouldn't just go buy us jams. She would make jams. And this was the coolest thing as a kid, right? And not only would she make jam, she would take me to the, like, fabric store and let me pick out my own colors. And then she'd say, what jams do you want? And then she'd, bring, she'd come home, and then she would go into her room and get her sewing kit out and all that. And she wouldn't just make them for me and give them to me. She would include me in the process. And when I was four, five, six, right, it was like turning on the sewing machine, And then later it became, you know, I'd take the thread and put it through the needle hole, which, by the way, is like still a spiritual gift of mine because I can do it really good. (laughs) Sherry always kisses me, your hands are so still. You know, she was a nurse and her hands were like this. You know, she's like, I can't give a shot, you know. Anyway, um, and along the way, you know, my, my, then I started folding things and she eventually let me use the sewing machine and everything. And I got to be part of the jam making process, right? My mom, my mom had a mission, right? She had a purpose and she invited me into it. She was making something original and I got to be part of it, which was so cool. Good mom, right? And, and I look at that and I go, that's kind of like God because he has this mission, And he's inviting us to play a role or do a cluster of things in the process. And he works with us where we're at and says, here's where you're at. I want you to to get involved in this way. I want you to play a role in this way so that you can help accomplish the overall purpose. I I love what 
God told Jeremiah, because it's true for us as well, in the Old Testament, he said this, before I made you, Jeremiah, in your mother's womb, I chose you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I set you apart. I mean, let this truth sink in, that you are chosen and called, that you are created with a special assignment to reveal God and to accomplish his purposes. Just think of it like this. You're God's pair of jams. <laughs> I mean, really, he weaved you together with divine thread. And here's the thing. When I was a kid, I'd be wearing these jams, and I'd walk around, and I would think my mom was so cool. Because it wasn't just about my cool jams. Hey, check out my jams. See, if someone would ask me, where'd you get those? You know, I want to go to Surf City and get me a pair is kind of the imply, right? But I would say, you know what? I didn't buy these anywhere. My mom made these and I helped her. Because I wanted to tell the people, my friends, right? I wanted to tell not just about my jams, but about the person behind the jams. And see, God gives us gifts and abilities and passions and all kinds of good stuff. Not so we can go around tooting our own horn saying, look at me, I'm amazing, but so that we can point to him. So that we can draw others ultimately to who he is. 1 Corinthians says this. Each person is giving something to do. That's you and me. That shows who God is. The Apostle Peter later in the New Testament says it like this. You were chosen to tell about the excellent qualities of God who called you. God entrusts every single one of us with a key role in his mission, a special assignment. And when you play your role, your life begins to show him glory, to point other people around you to the person of Jesus. That's the goal. Whatever your role or set of things God is inviting you to participate in and contribute in, that's a significant clue to what your calling is, the calling that God has on your life. But you have to accept your role, and you have to accept God's mission. And by the way, you do have a calling. In fact, every follower of Jesus has a calling. And it goes one step further. It's a calling to be in ministry. In the Greek language where the New Testament was originally written, there's a Greek word called doulos. And it's translated either servant or minister or service or ministry. And the call in the New Testament is to call every one of the followers of Christ, everyone, every follower of Christ to be a doulos, to be a servant of God. See, being in ministry isn't about being a pastor or some kind of missionary. The Bible calls every follower of Jesus into this way of living where there is a calling, where you are a minister in essence. Every single one of us has that call and it's rooted in service. I mean, why else do you think God didn't, you know, we, we, we say, okay, Jesus, I want to trust you with my life. When you get saved, right, why doesn't God just zap us and take us to heaven? Ever wonder that? Well, why does he leave us in a fallen, broken world? Well, essentially, it's because God has a ministry for you. He has a ministry for you in his church and a mission for you in this world. Your call to salvation, receiving Jesus as Savior and Lord, encompasses a call to service as well. Those two things are inseparable. Regardless of your job or career, you are called to ministry. A non-serving Christian is a contradiction. 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul
Paul says this to his protege. He saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. And then another translation says this, it is he who saved us and chose us for his holy work, not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan. Whenever you use your God-given abilities to help or serve someone else, you are fulfilling your calling. You are pointing others to God. That is the goal. That's part of this term, the holy work. That's part of your holy work. And, And just to be clear, it's not your holy work or your good works or good deeds that save you. Just to be clear about that in the scriptures, you aren't saved by your service, but you are saved for service. A person who truly understands and receives God's grace, our only response is to live a life of gratitude and in service to the one who saved us. Now, this life of of good works or service that God calls us to, here's another cool thing about this, is he's equipped us. You are equipped by God. He didn't leave us hanging. You're equipped by him to fulfill your unique calling and, again, to reveal his glory. This is very, very important to know, that God equips you with everything you need to live out your calling. Everything you need. God sculpted you just the way you are before you even were. He engraved you with a unique cluster of abilities Talents, gifts, passions, and personality traits. And we're going to unlayer that these next several weeks in this series. I mean, maybe you have a knack for organization that just comes naturally to you. Maybe you don't. Or a keen ear for music or not. Or a heart that beats for justice or peace. A mind that understands complicated technological things or how to fix things. I don't have that. An empathetic heart for hurting people. But maybe you have an unprecedented drive that you live with every day, or an uncanny ability to play video games for hours and hours. I mean, everyone's got a gift, right? God gives you, though, all the raw material. That was a joke, by the way. God gives you all the raw material that you need to live the life that he designed you to live. The master architect has designed you a special way on purpose. Or another way to put it is this. God has a blueprint for your life. And a blueprint is the design. You see, an architect, they they meticulously and thoughtfully create blueprints as a way. I mean, you kind of know this, right? Before they actually build the building, seems obvious. I mean, nobody would dare go build a building without the blueprint, you know, having been mapped out. And the whole process kind of laid out. Because a blueprint is essentially the picture of the end product as seen by the architect, And God doesn't, you know, not plan our lives that way either. He has a specific design, a blueprint for your life. But without understanding the divine blueprint, without the direction of the master, right, God himself, without the direction from him, we fall into the trap of attempting to live our lives our own way, building our own house without having the blueprint. God's blueprint is the place you turn as a reference point to guide you into living your life well in a way that honors him, to aligning your life with who he created you to be. God has specific purposes and plans for your life. And so let me ask you a question, rhetorical, but who's responsible for discovering the blueprint for your life? It's you, right? Yeah, you are responsible 
to discover God's blueprint for your life so that you can build the life he created you to build. The scriptures say this in Ephesians 5. Don't live carelessly, unthinkingly. Make sure you understand what the master wants. Then in Philippians, God is working in you to help you want to do and be able to do what pleases him. Or another translation says, to will and to act in order to fulfill God's purpose. God's working that in you and into your life. Again, we are a piece of canvas for God's paintbrush. And the canvas is intended to point people around us to the master artist. Everything comes from God alone. Everything lives by his power and everything for his glory, Paul says. God distributes strengths for you to live out your divine assignment. And God, you know, it, this isn't just this isn't just what like some people think of as like ministry. I mean, I think in the church we often have a too limited or narrow view of, of what ministry is, right? I mean, God puts you in certain places, in certain neighborhoods, uh, you know, in certain work, you know, arenas. He gives you certain gifts that play out in all different ways. I mean, God gives the Olympian speed or the salesman savvy or the surgeon with skill. Right? Why? Well, is that because they want, God wants them to, to win gold medals or, or close sales or heal bodies? Well, partially. But the big answer is this, that you would make a big deal out of God with your life. That you would cause others, that you yourself, and that you would cause others to revere him for his renown. First Peter 4 is so good around this, beginning with verse 10. God has given us gifts to each one of given gifts to each one of you from his great variety of spiritual gifts. I can't wait to talk about spiritual gifts in this series. Manage them well, he says, then God will be given glory. Manage them well. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability God supplies, then in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Different translation translates this passage like this. Most of all, love each other as if your life depended on it. Love makes up for practically anything. Be quick to give a meal to the hungry, a bed to the homeless, cheerfully. Be generous with different things God gave you, passing them around so all get in on it. If words, let it be God's words. If help, let it be God's hearty help. That way, God's bright presence will be evident in everything through Jesus. And he'll get all the credit as the one mighty in everything. On course to the end of time. Oh, yes. God is on exhibit through the canvas of our lives, through your unique contributions. This is true inside the church, the body of Christ. And it's true outside the church to the surrounding world. And when our contributions enrich God's reputation to the world around us, you know what also emerges within us? Joy and meaning and fulfillment. And then the kingdom of God gets expanded. You see, we all have people along the way in our lives that have helped us find God, know God, experience God, see God in a fresh way. And you know what? God's called us to do the very same thing for others. I mean, that's the heart of this idea of ministry or doulos. That's what a holy work is about. That's where your calling begins. And so, as Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for God's glory. Ultimately, the origin of this way of living 
is when our lives become a genuine response of utter gratitude because of what Jesus has done for us. Romans 12, Paul says this, in light of God's mercy, in light of God's mercy, offer yourselves or offer your life as a, he uses the term, living sacrifice to God, dedicated in his service. Right, to, to offer your life right, in response to Jesus, him giving his life for you because he loves you, because he cares about you, because he wants the best for you. He died for you. I mean, what, what other response is there than, than giving our lives back in gratitude to him as living sacrifices? Because here's where this conversation starts. If you want to discover God's will and purpose, it starts by you declaring in your heart God, I want to give you my life. God, I want to give you my heart. And when you begin to posture yourself that way, it changes everything. I don't know if you've ever had that moment. I've had that moment. And there's bumps and bruises along the way. There's ups and downs along the way. But that moment when I was in college that that I decided, Jesus, I'm giving you my heart. All of it. No turning back. That was a moment for me. And the call of the Bible, the call to discover God's will for your life, that's where it begins. Because we kind of want to piece it together sometimes. Your calling unfolds when you choose to serve and to give your life away to others. It's when you become a living sacrifice. Now, there's this whole, like, theological framework in the New Testament that I just want to explain briefly for, for, for the ones who really like these kind of things. Um, great if you don't, just hang with me for about one minute. But, but there's something called the priesthood of all believers, and it's rooted in, in the Old Testament. The idea of calling is rooted in it's what's known as this priesthood of all believers. So this passage uh, in 1 Peter 2 says, But you are a chosen people... A royal priesthood. He's talking to, to, to a group of people, but he's also talking to us. A holy nation, right? A people group. A people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And where he's leading us to say, and this ought to be your response in your life. So if you go back into the Old Testament, there were priests, they were appointed and, and they had functions to go kind of on behalf of the people. So they would, they would go into the holy of, you know, they'd go into kind of the temple, right? And they would pray for people. They'd confess sins for people. They'd do uh, religious duties for, for people. They, they'd um, make atonement for sins on these people's behalf. That was the Old Testament world. But then Jesus comes and, and he established something very different, a new covenant. And it was essentially when anyone receives Jesus as their Savior, he or she immediately gets adopted into the family of God. The Holy Spirit begins to reside in them, and they become a priest or a priestess, right? Everyone say, I'm a priest. I'm a priest. I'm a priest. Good. I know, girls, that feels a little weird, maybe. I don't know. But, um, but, but the Bible says we're priests, right? And, and, and that's not to go around saying, hey, I'm a priest, but it's, but it's to understand what, what, what the Bible actually means by that, because as priests, every follower of Jesus, because of what Jesus did at the cross, every follower now has direct access to God. That's where it starts. There's no go-between needed anymore. We worship God directly, pray to God directly, confess our sins, receive cleansing from God. We have bold access to God's throne. In a time of need, we go right to God. Wherever we are, whatever's happening. I mean, this is really an amazing thing. 
And then there's this other huge implication of the priesthood of all believers. A priest has a function for the people. You have a function, a priestly responsibility to serve other people. It's actually a high calling, if you understand it correctly from the scriptures. It's a high calling that ought not be taken lightly. So a priest prays for someone else, encourages other people, comes alongside them when they have a need, grieves with them, rejoices with them, and the list goes on. And here's the thing. Unfortunately, there are a lot of churches out there that function on the Old Testament model where they view the pastor or the church staff as the people that do the ministry. They're the ones that pray for others. They're the ones that encourage others. They're the ones that grieve or do hospital visits or whatever. And the call of the New Testament says, no, 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 that's, that's, that's wrong. Etch a sketch. We're going to redo this. That all of us as followers of Jesus are called to be ministers or priests. And you see, this very idea has, has caused the church around our country and around the globe, it's been one of the primary things that has crippled and disempowered the church. Because every follower of Jesus is called, again, to be a priest. And when needs arise, what happens inside of you when, when you hear a need? What ought to happen, what the Bible calls us to is, is this. Is there a way I can be a minister or a priest or serve this person? That ought to be our heart's response. I mean, one just simple example is in our community, we have what we call missional communities. Some of you have led or helped lead missional communities. This is a perfect example of, of where priests need to be living this out. Right? It's, 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 it's wrong when you think about a New Testament church to think of if you have a need, you go to the pastor. It's not wrong like that's the wrong act, but like it's, it's, it's too narrow. And our missional community leaders, quite frankly, are the pastors in our community. And so if you're not in a missional community, I, I encourage you, in the fall, when we launch those back up in September, jump into one. And in that space where there's four, six, eight, ten, twelve people, right, your leaders, we're trying to equip them that they can care for you, pray for you, encourage you, meet you in those times of need. Now, sometimes we need further help or, 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 or um, a professional or something like that, or, or you do need the pastor, so I'm not against that, but, but I'm talking about the New Testament vision of what it means for every follower of Christ to be a priest. I mean, imagine, and there's a lot of you that are this, but imagine if our community, every single one of us said, I'm going to do this. Imagine a community full of priests, priests that can get married, by the way, just in case you're wondering. But I mean, the, whole, the high call of Jesus is, and Jesus, it says in Hebrews, in the New Testament, that Jesus is the high priest, right? He's the ultimate priest, and he's our example to follow. I mean, Jesus leads the way, and he articulates what he expects from us very clearly. At the heart of what this is all about, Matthew 20, 28, your attitude, Jesus says this, your attitude must be like my own. For I, the Messiah, did not come to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life. Serving others is the heartbeat of Jesus and the lifeblood of his church. It is who Jesus was and is, and it is who he calls you to be. Servanthood as a way of living is not optional for followers of Jesus. Jesus came to serve and to give. And those two verbs ought to define your life if you're a follower of Jesus. The path for you to discover your calling, to know God's will and purpose for your life, it starts by serving and giving. And our natural inclination, we all know, is not, is not to do that. We, we want to be served. We want to be given to. We, we want to consume. I mean, I hear all the time people say, you know, I'm, I'm looking to 
I'm looking to find a church that meets my needs or blesses me. And, and inside, I'm just like, that's not the right way to think about it. See, what if, what if we had Christians everywhere that were approaching finding a church and they were saying more things like this? I'm looking for a church where I can contribute and serve and be a blessing. It would change our whole, like, ethos. Because as we mature as followers of Jesus... Right? As we mature in our walk with God, our focus ought to increasingly shift toward giving our lives away in service. I mean, if you aren't serving, I don't know, you're kind of just existing. I mean, the mature follower of Jesus, they stop asking, who's going to meet my needs? And they begin to ask, whose needs can I meet? I mean, Jesus said it like this. If you try, and this is five times in the Gospels, it's recorded. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. If you give up your life for my sake, for the sake of the good news, really for others, you will save it. This isn't talking about salvation. This is talking about life here and now, that I'm calling you as a follower of Jesus to live this way of life, right? to give your life away to others. So there's this, there's this front page article on the San Francisco uh, Chronicle about a metro transit operator. Her name was Linda Wilson Allen, and she loves the people that ride on her bus. She knows them by name. She treats them with dignity. She knows all the regulars. And if someone's late that she knows is always there, she'll wait for them, and she'll try to make up the time later. Pretty cool story. There's one woman who was in her 80s named Ivy, and she had some heavy grocery bags, and she was struggling with them. So, so Linda got out of her bus driver's seat and went and helped Ivy carry the grocery bags onto the bus. Now Ivy is at the bus stop, and she waits. She lets other buses pass so that she can ride on Linda's bus. Linda saw a woman one day. Her name was Tanya. She was in a bus shelter. She could tell that Tanya was new to the area, that she was lost. And so it was around Thanksgiving time. It's recorded in this article. And Linda said to Tanya, hey, you're out here all by yourself. You don't know anybody. Come over for Thanksgiving and kick it with me and the kids. Now they're friends. The reporter who wrote the article rides on the bus every day. He said Linda has built such a little community of blessing on that bus that passengers offer Linda the use of their vacation homes. They bring her potted plants and floral bouquets. When people found out she likes to wear scarves to accessorize her uniforms, they started giving them as presents to Linda. One passenger upgraded her gift to a rabbit fur collar. Think about what a thankless task bus driving could be. Cranky passengers, broken down engines, traffic, all the rest that comes with that. Gum on the seats, I can't imagine pulling that off. And you ask yourself, how does she have this attitude? I was enamored by this article. And it goes on. In the San Francisco Chronicle says, her mood is set at 2.30 a.m. when she gets down on her knees to pray for 30 minutes. And the Chronicle says... There is, records her, there is a lot to talk about with the Lord, says Linda. When she gets to the end of her line, she always says, at the end of the day, that's all. I love you. Take care. You ever had a bus driver tell you I love you? <laughs> People wonder, where can I find the kingdom of God in our world? I'm bus number 45. Where can I find the church? I'm bus number 45. Behind the wheel of that metro transit vehicle. You see, Linda's calling is your calling. Not to drive a bus, but to embody everything she embodies. 
that her heart was postured to serve. Wherever God places you, wherever God puts you, God says, I want you to serve unselfishly. I want you to give your life away. God longs for his church to love the people inside it and outside it with unselfish love in the ordinary of life. All of us, all of us will give our lives to something. All of us. We have to ask. We have to wrestle with what is it going to be? Will it be something temporal that will fade or something eternal that will last? See, a lifestyle of service is the pathway to real lasting impact and eternal significance. A lifestyle of service. I'm going to call the band up for one final song. But, but as they're coming up, <clears throat> it's through service that we discover the meaning of our lives. It really is. The Bible says each of us finds our meaning and function as part of his body. And, and then later, I want you to think about how all this makes you more significant, not less, because of what you are part of. God wants to use you to make a difference. You have immeasurably value. You have been created with purpose and intention. You are his masterpiece, and he wants to use you in this world. And he wants to add meaning and joy and fulfillment. He wants, to ha- he wants you to live your life where you carry with you eternal significance in your day-to-day, ordinary, mundane things of life. He has a calling for your life. And one of my prayers for not only this morning, but as the next several weeks unfold in this series, is that you would discover more clues to that calling. That you would get clearer and clearer on on, on who it is God has designed you to be and what it is he's called you to live and do in this world. The, The truth of the matter is this. You have to decide in your heart, are you going to be a servant of God? Are you going to say to God, God, I give you all of me as a living sacrifice. I'm going to posture my life in a way, God, wherever you take me, wherever it leads me, I'm going to, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to seek you. I'm going to ask for you to open up doors for me. And I love what Joshua in the Old Testament says. He captures this in this amazing phrase. It's actually probably familiar to you, perhaps. He says, choose this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And my question for you this morning is this. Is that your declaration, the declaration that's embedded in your heart? Are you saying, choose this day? Because of what Jesus did at the cross, choose this day who you will serve. But I know for me, I'm going to serve you, God. I'm going to serve you with utter gratitude in response ultimately to what you've done for me at the cross. Will you pray with me? Father, as I, as I pause and as we lead into this next song, we're all in different places this morning, but, but may this song be the anthem of our heart. God, I know it's, it's the anthem I long for my life to have. I, I pray it would be the anthem that the church, that the awakening church, that we would embody this, that we would live this, that we would be this. I pray that in Jesus' name.